Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and I'm your host, Cole Sharman. Today we are joined by Douglas Brush. Doug is the VP of Cybersecurity Solutions at the Special Counsel and a DECO company. Doug and his team provide incident response, governance, compliance, and end-to-end security solutions for clients across the globe. He's also the founder and host of Cybersecurity Interviews. Douglas has previously held leadership roles with Kivu Consulting, Kraft Kennedy and Duff and Phelps after founding cybersecurity and technology consulting firms over the past two decades. He has conducted hundreds of investigations involving data breach, trade, security theft, insider threat and a variety of other legal and compliance issues. Hope you enjoy. Beach and Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Hi, Doug. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Carl? Yeah, doing very well. Thank you for asking. So let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in New York City. I'm born and raised. And who are or were your parents? So my parents were actually management consultants. Uh, Very early, actually, they were communication consultants, too, in the 70s and 80s in New York City, Uh, Judith and Douglas Brush. So I I, I certainly am a junior to my father. Uh, But it was interesting. They, They both spent a good amount of time adopting early technology, particularly around telecommunications and computers. And how did that influence you coming, you know, from such a communication background? Well, in a lot of ways. I mean, one, I got to see a lot of the new technologies that were coming kind of online in the early 80s, both in video, audio, um, computers, but got to see how they were being applied both in real world scenarios besides just the technology, seeing what their what their actual purpose was, because it's, it's great to have a great piece of shiny new tech, but in, in the end of the day, you have to figure out why you're using it. So I got to really hear them work with people and see, okay, we're going to put this solution in place, but why are we doing it? And I think that was very lucky early on to have that kind of imparted on me. So it wasn't one of those situations where uh, just because you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. Did they travel a lot? They did. Um, and again, I think that prepared me for later in my life, but it, it also worked out well and, and probably expensive for them too, in certain ways. While they would be able to take me on business trips that were that were paid for at different conferences, um, you know, the early days I would travel overseas with them and adopted uh, a very uh, eclectic palate and then would come back to home in the United States and didn't really want these exotic foods. And they realized quite quite quickly how expensive that was going to be to continue to take me to places where I, I then wanted mussels marinara or something like that when I came back to the States. <laughs> so where did you, where would you say majority of your growing up was done? It, it was really, you know, in, in New York City, really the Hudson Valley region, um, which was, was actually, was, again, very, very fortunate. You know, I kind of grew up in what we call this kind of IBM country. So really from New York City through Westchester County, Putnam County, and the Dutchess County in the New York Hudson Valley region, 
IBM, Philips, all these companies had these big tech centers. And so it was a very technology-rich area. A lot of smart people, good colleges that were there that were, you know, partnering with uh with these with these companies. But it was uh, it was kind of cool to kind of grow up in this area where um, I kind of could be able to be in a very tech-rich environment, but also a very beautiful place too. And I suppose around that, what was your education like? It was interesting, you know, in, in growing up in the 80s and 90s, and, and kind of going to regular school, you know, say just, you know, your kind of traditional education, there wasn't a lot that went around technology. Uh, I was having to actually educate myself quite a bit on computers, how they worked. Um, but for the most part, it was your standard kind of, uh, at that time, education around, you know, whether it be economics, history, social studies, not a lot in technology. That was something I had to kind of really spend a lot of time training myself. And when was the first time you heard about, you know, cybersecurity as we know it today? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, there's the kind of a gray area um, of of the probably mid to late 90s. And we really weren't calling it cybersecurity then. There might have been words thrown around like cyberpunk. Um, there were certainly the hackers that I grew up kind of admiring and watching, such as um, you know, the Kevin Mitnicks, Kevin Paulsons, all the guys that were in all the different, uh, unfortunately, kind of nefarious areas. So I got to see what was happening by reading about their exploits in magazines like 2600 and online forums, knew what they were doing. But at that point, we didn't have an industry like we knew as cybersecurity or really even information security. It was still you know, very IT-based, kind of we were just getting into networking at that point. The internet was just coming on board. But there really wasn't this whole thing about understanding what cybersecurity means, particularly around business risk. And you've specialized in um, a variety of areas, but how did you initially get into cybersecurity? Yeah, it was it was kind of interesting. I kind of had around the 2008 timeframe when still doing a lot of work with big banks and financial institutions, and they were going through their, certainly their changes with the economic downturn. I had really been into you know, a lot of network network security at that point, but really just said, okay, if I'm going to focus on something and I had to focus on one thing, what would it be? And it was cyber security and kind of went into that mindset around towards the mid, mid part of 2008. All these things were changing with, with the economy and my clients. My wife and I actually got married in that time, come back from our honeymoon. And I kind of came back with this, you know, open mind and fresh perspective. Like, I want to get into this. And completely serendipitous, a guy of, that I know, uh, still a good friend of mine, this gentleman by the name of Rob Sanderson, who runs an audio-visual forensics company in the Hudson Valley, had reached out to me and said, you know, we're getting involved with this litigation where there's a computer that was recording these set of events. And I'm looking at the video, but I'm questioning the timestamps that are on the video. Can you come and do an analysis on this computer do a forensic investigation, prepare a report for court that explains how the computer time was being recorded. And sure enough, we did an investigation and showed that the time frames that were being recorded on this video were not in line with what was actually being shown uh, or the reality of what was there. Basically, there was a time skew on the computer. The computer was off a network and hadn't updated. So it was this really cool experience of digging in and kind of going back to that hacker roots or ripping apart a computer, finding out what occurred, putting it into a meaningful way that was then being able to be brought forth in court. So I got a chance to testify on that really cool experience and decided that's really where I wanted to be, was doing computer forensics and kind of the investigative part of, of the industry. Yeah, that makes sense. So 
explain to me, is there a difference for you between cyber investigations and instant response? Um, not necessarily. Um, it's really what, you know, what people are presenting it as. I mean, there's a degree, I suppose, you know, with incident response, I would look at it as more as a process uh, of going through these, these set of steps and this kind of uh, game plan, let's say, of determining what could have occurred. You know, were these series events, if we put them all together, is there an incident here? Is there a business impact? Do we need to go further? Um, and so that takes on an investigative tone to it. And that's where you get into cyber investigations and forensics as part of that process as well. And it, they certainly have their own kind of understanding as well when you're looking at things in the context of maybe something that is purely litigation focused where it could be a bad lever and you're painting a story of so-and-so did this over this time frame. Maybe they downloaded data still can count with as, as an incident with inside an organization, but maybe won't pull in the full incident response team or go through the incident response process. So I think when you look at it from a process-driven perspective, incident response is a set of procedures that go around uh, building that story, understanding what has occurred so you can continue business operations where an investigation is going to tend to be you know, more focused with less of a necessarily the gun to the back of your head all the time. Now, I'm sure from your consulting background, you've seen a number of um, experiences, a number of organizations, but where are you currently seeing the majority of incidents coming from? You know, it, over the past, um, you know, it's one of those things that does change over time. But I would say over the past couple of years, certainly seeing quite a few, and I think a majority of them, being ransomware-driven events that have an incident response, have a network intrusion aspect to them as well. And, and coupled with that would be business email compromise, particularly around Microsoft Office 365. Those two are pretty, pretty much in the 80-20 role of 80% of the work that we see. And even going back a few years ago, when you looked at ransomware, it was something that was pretty well known that somebody clicked on something, you get an infection, pay a ransom. We started seeing things over the past year where it was much more detailed, going back to things that we saw, you know, really only from state-sponsored attackers and using different types of attack and toolkits to get into a network spread through the network before they even launched a ransomware, um, which had more of a feel of a network intrusion. So they were going through and pivoting off of one box to another, spreading uh, backdoors and other types of rootkits and types of uh, uh, backdoor shells. That wasn't something that you normally saw in a ransomware event. So you had uh, attackers using more advanced um, type of tools to do even ransomware. Um, so that was kind of an anomalous thing. And then certainly with the business email compromise has been a, a big thing. Even before we we uh, hit record today, the call that I had was going through a business email compromise where attackers had gone into a user's Office 365 account, had looked for email traffic that uh, was related to wire fraud and started looking for the patterns where they can inject their information to try to defraud a company or a set of companies. And so that's a very common attack too. And the beauty of that, at least from the attacker's perspective, is they don't necessarily have to go through all these different firewalls, getting on Windows computers, Windows servers. They attack at a cloud environment. Then it's just going through identities and accounts to do their different types of attacks. In the end of the day, attackers that we majority that we see, the cyber criminals, are trying to monetize their efforts. And so they're going to take the path of least resistance. So if they can do something, make a lot of money, not have to worry about um, a lot of effort going into it, 
that's the type of attacks they're going to launch. And you touched on it from a, I suppose, a hacker point of view as such. Um, but what are the common mistakes you often see from organizations? Complacency. A lot of organizations feel that if they don't see a problem, it doesn't exist. Um, and that's one of the challenges when we talk about the incident response process is a lot of it is in preparation. Setting up those types of detection, alerting, uh, something that somebody can see with inside the environment, what's going on, sometimes correlating events, it even comes down to training and preparation, making sure that the IT staff's trained on proper IR procedures, ensuring that the users know how to report things when they have a problem. You know, a lot of times there's this demonization that happens from the user's perspective is, oh, it's the user's fault, it's the user's this and that. And it's really unfair to do that to the users because they're probably one of the best detectors of anomalous events in your environment. They're the ones that get sent phishing emails. They're the ones that get you know, cold called for phishing phone calls. They're the ones that get attacked. And at the end of the day, I want to compromise a human being, not a computer. So if you can get people trained up on what to look for, be suspicious, report things when they see things, often that can cut down your mean time to respond and mitigate those risks as opposed to something that goes on with a dwell time of 90 days. So when you're talking about that, I suppose, as we've classed it, inside a threat uh, aspect, what provides a higher risk to the organization, uh, that inside a threat or the outside threat? Well, it's also going to, it's going to really depend on an organization, organization by organization basis of what their threat profile is going to look like, where their risks lie. Ultimately, it's about their business processes. You know, is it something where are they holding a lot of financial information that somebody in the inside could think is valuable and how do you put the appropriate risks and controls around it versus somebody in the outside? Um, it, it's really going to depend. And a lot of things that we see too is in the end, it all becomes an insider threat at one way or the other. From my perspective, I used to take a lot of uh, – uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu about 20 years ago, and the joke was is all fights end on the ground. Whether you're doing stand-up striking and boxing to grappling, at the same point, everybody ends up in the ground. And the way I look at that is a little bit too from from attack perspectives. Somebody has to get inside, compromise an account, do something. At some point, there was something either misconfigured as a credential, a password, two-factor wasn't enabled, a port was left open, something was left open or left weak enough in a way that somebody could compromise it, whether it be from the inside or outside. So ultimately, it's all an insider threat one way or another. You talked about complacency. We just touched on insider threat. Are there other things that you believe organizations are not considering around this? Compliance. Um, you know, the, the, the compliance landscape's changing dramatically. Uh, we're seeing laws like the California Consumer Privacy Act or CCPA coming online that's saying organizations have to take reasonable uh, steps in protecting consumer data. Um, and if they collect a certain amount of information, they have to be able to forget it or remove it. And one of the challenges with that and whether we've seen it in incident response, electronic discovery and litigation, uh, government inquiries, most people don't know what data they have, where it's stored, how it's sprawled, and it becomes this issue of just not understanding your own environment. That tends to be the biggest problem and where people just continue not to think about applying things as more the governance of what they have and deciding what data they want to keep, what's the retention policy is going to look like. So if there is an event, um, they only have what they, they need and get rid of what they don't. 
So we touched on a lot of different subjects within instant response. So can you run me through a step-by-step way of handling an incident that you would recommend? Yeah, well, the recommended way is not to run around with your hair on fire, but that's, a, that's the unfortunate problem with most organizations. They tend to freak out. Uh, so again, I, I'd emphasize this before, a lot of it comes into the preparation is being prepared for these things and being battle ready and being staged for your next fight. Um, that, that's really where it all begins is knowing that you're going to have an incident and preparing your team for it, going through the incident response plan. So when an event happens, you look at it and start making that determination is – this is something we need to worry about and making sure there's people on point that have the qualifications, not necessarily with the technical, but sometimes also the organizational uh, wherewithal to make the determination, is this event or series of events qualify as an incident and be able to promote that in the incident response process to call it an incident and then bring around the necessary resources in response. So then the response efforts are going to go around from everything from doing uh, initial data collection Often in enterprise environments, we want to look far and wide, start looking for things that we call IOCs or indicators of compromise. So that could be a series of things that we see across maybe 1,000 hosts, 100 hosts, or maybe it's only the one thing we see on one host that's an anomalous frequency of lease occurrence. So it's looking for these types of things that we can start correlating. Hey, okay, this is the odd thing. We start wide and we start narrowing down as we pull together these events, IOCs, and saying, here's where we can start seeing what's occurred. And then from that, start making recommendations on where the additional parts of the investigation have to go, whether we have to take an entire host offline as a precautionary measure, but also as a data preservation effort. Uh, Sometimes we may even want to keep some of the stuff going normally. We don't want to let the attackers know. We might not know if the attackers are still in the environment. We start changing things that might change their tactics. They might do things destructive or do things to cover their tracks. So it's often you want to kind of maintain a level of um, calm, composure, document everything. I always say in an incident response, you have to follow the three Ds of documentation, documentation, documentation. Because if you're moving too fast to document it, you're probably moving too fast at all. So you really want to make sure you're getting in your notes what's going on and what you've changed, what's you know what you're discovering, so you can share it with your other investigators. And then again, try to lift that fog of war to understand what's going on. Then moving through different steps, um, such as you know eradication. You know we want to make sure that the things that are bad that are happening in there are are going or are being removed and actually you go through a little bit more of a remediation step and you go through short-term and long-term remediation steps of kind of preparing uh, these systems to be protected going through eradication and then you know moving moving through the whole, the entire process which i also jumped over containment there too but so the point is that there's a series of processes that go in place and steps to ensure that, you know, what you don't want to do is start playing whack-a-mole in the environment by going through containment and eradication steps on, on, on one area, but not knowing what's going on in another and having that prop back up. I've seen that happen with a lot of unfortunate environments where the clients want to move too quickly. And we're saying we don't have a full understanding of if this malware is all over. Um, You know, there's really bad things out there right now, like TrickBot and Emotet that continue to propagate like worms with inside the environment. If we haven't found ways to stop them from moving, you can restore a system and have it get reinfected. That's just going to continue on and on. So we want to make sure we come up with a good plan and kind of measure twice and cut once to the point where we get all the way down, make sure we're feeling the systems are stable, people are confident that the systems are brought back up online in a way that's safe and that that are working the way that the business wants them and then going through the reporting and lessons learned which is 
pretty important and a lot of people try to skip over, but it's really to document, again, pulling out all your documentation from the beginning all the way down to the end, writing up what occurred so you can feed it back into your lesson uh, to the beginning part of preparation so you know better the next time there's an event or set of in or an incident that happens, what you did bet good the time before or what might not have gone so well, so you can then do it better the next time. And an area of this, uh, to get this started, is the detection process. Uh, and I know a lot of work is being done in order to speed this up or even, even detect it at all. So what's your recommendations in terms of speeding up the detection process? One of the one of the most fundamental important parts of this, and it serves multiple factors, is having a good known set of baselines with inside your environment. Um, this way, when you are worried that something is happening, whether it be incident response or even if you have a threat hunting team that might be looking for things that haven't been totally understood in the environment yet, that you know normal from abnormal. And so those abnormal things start sticking out more. Um, so the more that you can have baseline disk images, um, have a standard set of hardware inventory, software inventory, user inventory in the environment, this way you can take out all those knowns and then you're just looking for those little anomalies, it becomes a lot easier. Uh, one of the problems that we see certainly is, you know, we'll go in and look at a bunch of login events with inside of an environment, asking people, should this be occurring? And people say, geez, we don't know. You know, five people are using that admin account. Okay, well, where are they logging in from? Don't know. And it's like the more we, when we ask these questions, they don't know. It just delays the response. So the more tight a ship an organization runs as far as their good IT hygiene and best practices and having good baselines in place, the easier it is to detect those anomalies and cut that mean time to respond down. And through the actual response itself, how do we move quick i suppose quicker and more efficiently through that process training i mean it, it's really it's and it's both uh, from the people perspective but also for the tool set you you pick I, I tend to be kind of tool agnostic when it comes to you know whether it be your firewalls your endpoint detection and monitoring there's different strokes for different folks different things are going to work well what's going to become important is whatever solutions that people put in place that they have the right training um, around their security products to know okay let's filter out this stuff let's make this more efficient and, and watching for these things the more detection, more alerting that you turn on is not always helpful. It's just more noise. You have a signal to noise ratio problem. And so if you can actually figure out what are the things that you care about more and then watch those things, whether it be good or bad things, you can hone in on those and help train your team in, in looking for those things better. Um, but it really comes down to those soft skills for people understanding, okay, how do I think around these things critically and put back into that feedback loop the types of abnormal and normal activities. How do we prepare for this both mentally, mentally physically and process-wise, other than training, how else can we prepare? Because I feel like people underestimate, like you said, that you know, it is a fire sort of way of reacting. So how do we prepare for that, especially on the mental side? Uh, lots of scotch. I found good quality peanut scotch. <laughs> Uh, but you do actually do a little. You do you need to, you actually do need downtime. I think that's a often overlooked area of preparation, is actually rolling off people in your incident response team to rest and and regroup and recharge. You see a lot of p 
people burn out their IR teams or consultants that get burned out in IR because they move from one fire to the next, to the next, to the next, you know, it's, it's arbitrage. Human brains don't operate the same 24 hours a day. There are cycles. So you want to make sure that people are, are operating on their best on the up cycles and resting on the down. And so too often I find that people are, are getting burnt out, particularly around IR, um, and it just makes the process go longer and, and less efficient. So that's really one of the most important things that I think uh, needs to be done because people need to come into this fresh uh, and not burnt out from the last engagement. And I suppose all of this is adding up to my next question, which is how do we speed up recovery time and limit damage to an organization? You know, we talked about detection, we talked about uh, through the instant response, but the next phase of that, how do we actually, I suppose we talk about, um, you know, speed up, but really it's about that limitation aspect. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the things that people often conflate, um, and this has been happening for 40 years of that I can remember in IT and other types of business services, it's not just about backing up your data, but actually doing uh, disaster recovery. So you have one aspect of, yes, I have my data backed up, but what about the systems those reside on, the services that support that data? How quickly can I restore those services and allow data to, um, to be accessed by who it needs to be accessed? Often we find people don't practice the recovery steps more than they should. And there's a huge portion of that. And that was actually you know, part of the, the IR process is doing recovery. So if you look at recovery, it could be business continuity recovery, but it can also be IR recovery, huge overlap. It's going through that process as much as you can to test out what your failovers look like, that if you have to cut off a server that's being compromised by ransomware, that you can cut over to a backup before that's infected or stand up a new server and restore uh, data to it. How long is that going to take? What's your, you know, what can the business tolerate as far as a restoration period and your, uh, your, your mean times to respond? So, or, uh, recover. So, it's one of the things that I think organizations don't practice enough. Both their backup procedure uh, restorations ensure there's integrity of their backups, but also their um, their ability to recover. And that really hurts a lot of organizations when they're scrambling to say, "Geez, you know, we put all this money into this good technology, but." Nobody's really ever tested it or used it. And when it comes to recovery, they're already under the gun with an incident. They're stressed out and it just gets sloppy. And you're talking about them team members, but who are the most important members of the organization when it comes down to incident response? Well, it's, it's going to be very organizationally specific. Sometimes it can be somebody in you know, one of the key people that I had working directly with in an incident last year was a CFO or another one might be a director of IT and another one might be a CISO. It's really going to depend per organization. Um, the key is, is that it's, it's a team sport and it really shouldn't fall on the shoulders of one person. Just as with IT systems, you don't want to have a single point of failure in your processes with people. So you don't want to have it all rest on the shoulders of one person. You want to have some knowledge sharing, have some people that are really good at doing what they do, but also can share some of that with other people. And as long as that information is documented and somebody else can get through it, that becomes important. Um, so uh, I would look at it more as, you know, a structure. You know, you really want to make sure a team is put together, and that is going to include folks like outside counsel, um, inside counsel, C-suite, 
tech tech people and I and uh, IT people to people that are leading an incident response investigation. All that's going to have to kind of work together kind of seamlessly during a, a response operation. So you want to make sure they're a well-oiled machine and they all become important in that case. And we said we spoke about this briefly before the call and you mentioned it earlier on in the uh, in this interview but with the advancement and the disruption of new technologies you know you mentioned uh, email compromise um, around that type of especially around ransomware but also the cloud so how is that changing incident response and what is the impact of them new technologies it's um, it's different. You know, a lot of the cloud technologies are based on identity and access management, which is a good and bad thing. It's very easy for somebody to set up an Office 365 tenant, set up the users, and get email services up and running. Um, don't necessarily need to be an exchange master to do that. And that was something that you knew how to know how to set up a domain, an on-premise domain environment, Active Directory services, Exchange, all that was built into a lot of on-premise stuff. That's not as necessary anymore. Certainly a lot that goes into the cloud. So there's almost this feeling of ease that goes into it. So somebody can set up all these accounts. Do you want to make them a regular user or global admin? I'll check global admin. So people might go through a process of setting up accounts in ways that don't even follow security best practices because it's almost too easy to set them up. Um, so that's where that the double-edged sword of the ease versus uh, risk kind of comes in. So that's one of the challenges that people are just setting these things up. They're not documenting them well. They're not checking them. And then when there is a compromise, um, they don't know their environment well enough to start looking for anomalies until you know, we're typically seeing a lot of third-party notification, meaning a vendor, a customer, government agency. Somebody says, hey, by the way, you've had a compromise. At that point, then they're starting to say, okay, well, what do we do? And then they're trying to figure out who is access with inside the cloud environment and who's doing what and they don't even have a good IR procedure around their cloud environment because they haven't even thought about that yet or they were in the middle of a cutover. So a lot of people are just not taking the time as they're doing cloud migrations, transformations and cutovers to build in their security incident response that needs to go along with that. And what's sad about that is a lot of that stuff is kind of baked in. There are ways to do that that's much more seamless and easy than it ever has been in the past. There's a lot from, if I'm looking at it from a CIO perspective, I can very easily price it out per user what it's going to cost uh, to secure that user's identity and that information. So it becomes a operational cost instead of a CapEx cost. That's that's awesome. But you know you need to you need to build around a lot of that security around it too. So it's. Uh, it's something that people just need to spend more time digging into of how do they set it up properly just as they would an old school on-prem server. You still have to set up the cloud situations properly, even though it's so easy to set it up just by clicking on a couple boxes. Yeah. Seeing this as a whole, as we've been sitting here, uh, Flipboard have just sent me an email basically just saying that they've just had a breach or, well, Earlier in the year, they had a breach, um, which has accessed, uh, well, unauthorized access to some of their data. Um, so where do you see the pressures coming for companies to invest more into cybersecurity? Would it be the, the regulators, the investors, or more of the consumer uh, aspect? Could be, could be all of it. You know, it really comes down to follow the money. Um, you know, no matter what, 
security uh, is still unfortunately looked at as as a cost center with inside most organizations. And what's important is for people in security is to frame things like the cloud and these new technologies that can bring in all, all these efficiencies, uh, give us levels of communication we never had before in collaboration, but say, hey, look, you know, we're going to bake in security to manage that risk because that's really all it comes down to. It's as unsexy as it is, cybersecurity is just risk management in one form or another. And so let's build in these risk controls around um, the way that the business operates so it's not a disruptor and it doesn't cost that much and we can explain it finally. Um, and I think that needs to start happening. So this way, when people say, you know, well, there's regulatory pressure, or there's consumer pressure, we're worried about being sued, it's at least there's a culture of building in security into their processes and not looking at it as a separate line item with inside the organization. So that's really where the advances are going to have to take place. And it's it's going to have to be something that becomes baked into business as opposed to something that's just kind of disparate and different. So on a high level, what does cybersecurity now mean to you? It really means that, like I said, it's, risk management. It's understanding, okay, if I'm looking at my organization, organizations I consult with, first question I ask is, how do you keep the lights on? You know, what, how does the data flow through this environment in a way that it's monetized? Let's pick out those key systems and let's build risk controls around them. To me, that's cybersecurity is just protecting the most critical assets in ways that allows them to operate and tolerate disruption. You're not going to eliminate all the risk. You're just going to mitigate risk around those critical assets and build a series of controls that can allow you to continue to operate without being a big financial burn. So for me, it's really about balancing cost, business risk, and to the extent that I can, like I mentioned before, find enablement by doing it. You know, Maybe there's a new technology that I can put into place that has a security focus kind of portion to it. I might not lead about that. I might say this is a very productive tool Oh, by the way, it's secure too, which is great. Um, so sometimes you have to kind of vary the lead a little bit when it comes to security by enabling it as, again, as part of another part of the process with inside the organization. And how would you suggest that we fundamentally make security more effective and efficient? Transparency uh, or invisibility even. You know, to the point where people trust it and see how it works, but also know that it works in the background. You know, one of the challenges, I was just updating my home router the other day, and I finally, finally, uh, on a Netgear router, had the ability to just set it to automatically update. Why in 2019 for a consumer router device that could update at two o'clock in the morning when nobody in the family's up, doesn't automatically, isn't by default automatically updating is insane to me. So more of these things need to happen that just happens in the background that people know that their technology is going to be secure there's nothing they have to do from a user's perspective and i'm a user of technology just like anybody else i just simply want it to work i don't want tech, uh, the security to be disruptive i just want to know that it's there and that it's operating and if there's a problem i can call somebody that's how it has to operate both in the enterprise and home to the point where security culture is just happening um, and it's it's more automated and so that's where we're seeing a lot of advancement uh, security operations and, and orchestration, hopefully more of that continues to occur. And that really, again, that's some of the benefits of going to cloud environments where you can put DevOps and security ops into the processes. So it just becomes a seamless part of the, uh, the organizational data flow.
Yeah, I feel like we've covered a lot <laughs> in a short <laughs> amount of time. Yeah. Um, but I think like a lot of these conversations are dealing with an evolving threat. And as we said, we talked about new technologies making it more complex. So how do you keep learning and keep evolving, uh, you know, as an individual within this sector? Part of it's just having to be passionate for it. Um, I mean, again, going back to, we talked about, you know, 1980, 81, when I got the first computer at five or six, I was passionate about technology and I, I still have to be. And really that's anybody that's in this space is you have to continue to be interested. Um, you have to constantly absorb and basically embrace your imposter syndrome. I find you have to, as soon as you figure out something, you have to move outside of your comfort zone. As soon as I feel complacent, I know I'm, I'm going to lose my edge. And so it's something where I have to go out and find something new to pick apart and, and be interested about. And that was, for example, like learning Office 365 security was completely new for me. It's a, it's a new graphical interface. So the user experience is different. How the technology is kind of flowing on the back is a little bit different. So I had to throw myself into learning something as a, you know, I label myself an expert on things, uh, which is great for marketing. But the reality is I, I know I always have to be a novice and go find those new things I don't know anything about and start all over again. And that's not how to do with cloud technology. I have to do with AWS. I have to do with all these different things that, great, I know something, can't get comfortable, have to go learn something new. And that's really it just becomes more of a mindset of constantly being curious and wanting to rip apart things and understand how they work. I think what I find really interesting, and we touched on it in terms of the mental aspects of cybersecurity, but from your point of view, talk me for a project or a time at any organization or with any organization that has really challenged you and brought you out of your depth like you just discussed. In the, some of the ones that I would, I would even think recently were, were some of the ones that were not necessarily even – a couple of them um, were not even technically difficult per se, but there were some different elements. The one they could think of was an incident response uh, investigation where we had a client with 25 to 30 global sites went down in seven minutes. And we were called in, and it was just a stressful situation. And, you know, you wake up that <laughs> – yeah, the call about the – investigation at 9, 11 o'clock at night. You no, know, you have to work until about one, get up at five, drink some coffee and get going again. And it's just knowing you're going to hit the road or hit the ground running, I should say, uh, for a couple of weeks while you try to get this company back up in operations, get them, um, get the investigation going to determine what had occurred. Was there data exfiltration? And those types of things, no matter what, um, they, they, they're, they're always a challenge because you have to be on your A game with that and, and not miss things. And certainly it becomes a team effort and having a good team and managing resources and keeping all this, the plates spinning. So th those are always the ones that uh, um, I, I think I also look for because they're, they're a challenge and they kind of get the adrenaline going. Uh, but they're, they're without a doubt a challenge. And then there's some that come in with new technology. I did quite a bit of um, – unmanned aerial vehicle or drone security over the past couple of years. And that was kind of just being completely outside of my helmet and trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to approach this? I, it comes down to the basics of how networks work, cellular networks work, but it's now encompassed and encapsulated with inside a set of drone technology. How are we going to strip that out and understand the security? So th that was a particular challenge, but it was, uh, it was very rewarding.
probably because it was so challenging. Yeah, I bet. And I, I must say that I don't want to put anyone off that's looking to get into cybersecurity. So what advice would you give people looking to get into the industry? Um, learn as much as you can, but but do so in a way that you don't feel overwhelmed. I mean, you can even get burned out just trying to figure all this out. Um, you know, the real advice I have is just you know, be, be patient, um, but have that thirst for knowledge and want to kind of constantly look for new things. But don't try to learn everything at one time, knowing that it's going to take years. Uh, like I said, I've been doing IT for 25 years, security for 10 or 12. Every day I'm finding new things. Um, so I, you, you can't learn it all. And I find a lot of people, when they launch into this figure, they want to learn everything in, in like a year. And it's like it just it just doesn't work that way. You, you're you not getting your 10,000 hours <laughs> figured out in one year and everything. It's just not enough time in a day. So um, it definitely takes it takes time. And so just being patient and being patient with yourself and others and always being willing to learn, ask a lot of questions. Uh, you really have to adopt early an inquisitive mindset um, and lose the ego right away. Um, that is probably one of the most important things. And if people said to me, you know, well, what kind of skills do I have to learn? I'd say, you know, there's certainly things like clouds. You know, basically, if you want to say, I'm gonna, what are the few technologies I want to learn right now? Figure out cloud, figure out DevOps and security ops, that's such a huge thing. I mean, that's where the future is going. Um, so if you can learn that, uh, but at the same time, you still learn, need to learn a lot of those soft skills and communication skills, how to write well, how to speak well, you know, go to things like Toastmasters, present on a to- topic you might not even know that much about at a local meetup group or one of the security groups, but getting out there and being able to talk about these things. Because the end of the day is there's a lot of complexity under the covers when it comes to technology, but most of the audience is going to be the public. It might be somebody in Congress, it might be a judge, it might be a board member or C-suite. Those people don't have that level of technical aptitude. Maybe some of them do, but for the most part, they just wanna hear the basics. They wanna hear, okay, why does this matter? Can you tell me in a few sentences how this impacts me? And your ability to take all those complex things in a 500-page technical scan report and boil it down to four billet points becomes one of the most important things that you can do in cybersecurity um, beyond even understanding what all that technical stuff means. Great. Now, what I didn't tell you, Doug, was that I always finish the podcast with 10 quick fire questions. So you ready? All right. I'm ready. Excellent. So what turns you on professionally? Challenges, not knowing something. What turns you off professionally? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I would say, uh, the, an, an attitude of unwilling to learn by other people, people that feel that they don't have to know something because they've already put their time in, uh, to me, I just don't have patience for that. You, you always have to learn something new. How do you unwind? Uh, relaxing with my family, cooking, snowboarding. What profession other than your own would you like to try? Oh, man. I, I would love to open a craft cocktail bar and or restaurant. <laughs> Excellent choices. What activity gives you the most energy? Probably snowboarding. I would say you know, as, as an ex- external kind of solo sport, that's that's my thing. Who is your biggest inspiration? Ooh, uh, that's, I mean, only picking one. You know, I want to do the blanket statement of my, of my family, but really you know, it's been my, you know, it's really, it's, it's, I'm going to cop out and say it's really hard to say between my uh, my father, my mother, 
and my wife and my daughter. I mean, both the four of them have pushed me in, in ways I couldn't even imagine because they're um, they see me for who I am and at different levels. So inspiration to me, it's not just somebody that I aspire to be, but somebody that pushes me in ways when I think I can't be pushed in that direction. And all four of them uh, constantly challenge me in my own beliefs of that and, and make me have to step up my game. That's a great answer. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be a subject? Ooh. One word. It's going to be, a, okay, one word, huh? One word. <laughs> <laughs> Risk. You're at your best when you are doing what? Dissecting a problem. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you like to impart? Never give up. And finally, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? Thanks for helping out everybody you helped out. Excellent. And you survived. There we go. I know. Uh, <laughs> so no, I really, I really appreciate your your time, Darren. It's been really um, great, you know, getting to know your experience within Instant Response and, and digital forensics and the whole investigation piece. But more importantly, for the people that are listening, how can they find you? How can they get in contact with you for people that you know want to know more and want to uh, dip into this as a as maybe a, a next job or maybe even require your services. Well, sure. I mean, the shameless plug would be go to go to cybersecurityinterviews.com, where you can certainly find information on my podcast. And really, the the whole impetus of me doing a podcast was to interview all the people I've grown up or grown to respect in the industry and grown up following, uh, but ask them a lot of the questions about how they got in the industry, what attracts them into the industry. So. I put it out there as kind of a body of work for everybody else that's in the industry or entering the industry of how to learn from the best. Um, and so I think some of the, the answers will be surprising to people because there's no clear path. Uh, that's a great way of you know, kind of finding out a lot about the industry. And I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, so I think Douglas Brush on Twitter and LinkedIn. If you search Douglas Brush, you, you can't can't miss me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.